I'm going to start out today by taking the questions from about a half dozen papers that still remain, and then we'll move to 11. Now, we're going to divide 11 into two halves, essentially, which is what that chapter has. The one on the implied reader, the first half with that diagram and everything. And then the second part, the role of the spirit and all that in interpretation. And I'm going to divide your papers up in two. Uh, so we'll, we'll take each half of those topics, then your papers, first half, then second topic, and your, your papers. Now I think with last time's lesson on 10 about intentionality, and uh, the, the two, well, first, the two-text idea of interpretation being a kind of a transaction and so forth, and then the intentionality. With that and today's uh, lesson and Wednesday's, in global terms, these are probably the three most important lessons in the course because they, they answer these big questions, you know, so you're basically looking at what does it mean to actually interpret? Is there any control on this? And what about playing the trump card of the Holy Spirit? I mean, these, these are kind of your big things because you have a guy like Andy back there where no matter when the argument goes, the next thing you know, boom, what about the Holy Spirit? Boom, you know, well... a one-sided conversation and somebody can't say, well no, wait, pastor, when you use the term conceptual signified in your sermon, what did you mean by that? I mean, there, you know, no way that something like that's going to work out. So, uh, uh, most people don't realize this. I, what I thought was good about this particular comment was, it's not like this. In a sermon, you have to be simpler, and you can be more complicated or profound in a Bible class. Well, that may be true, but not for the reason that, well, one goes quick and the other one, you know, it's not that. It's that there's no interactive dialogue in the sermon. It's all, so to speak, one way. Now, it's not entirely one way. You're going to see people, if you're speaking and the people are going, like that, you know something's going on. So you get a little feedback, but not clarification kind of stuff. Uh, uh, now, this is, uh, this is similar. Your first point is similar to what Chris said. Page 213, what does this mean? States one can never appeal to the intentionality of the author as a hermeneutical key to the interpretation of a given text. However, if is this the case, if the author is still living and can be asked about his intention, like me, for example, about this book. Or even then, does the text stand on its own apart from how the author might interpret his own text days, months, or years after he writes this? Now, that's a very interesting point. A very major interpreter of literature, Paul Ricoeur kind of makes this point you're making, Chris. 
that an author's, what would you call it, an author's production does, let me get the, uh, what was your thing here, does the text stand on its own apart from how the author might interpret his own text? And he would say, yes, it does. That it's its own sort of separate production in that sense. Now, uh, now I don't know about that. I'm thinking that this genre thing plays in a lot bigger than most people think. So if you're doing poetry or you're doing an historical novel, I think that's much more so than if I write an essay on the nature of the implied reader. See, I don't know that that's going to be different than what I intended. So essentially, I would say, uh, Chris, there are two things. Number one, it seems to be that genre, seems to me that genre is a question. If something is a novel, especially if, and so narrative, especially if it is related to history, then there could be influences or something in your story, connections that you didn't see. That's what I said under intentionality. Thus, to use my example, when it says that after John had been handed over in Mark chapter 1, Jesus went away to Galilee, maybe Mark wasn't even thinking about what that meant when he wrote it. He was just putting it down. Then secondly was the thing we talked about at the very end of the class last night, structuralism, with the notion that human beings, humanity is, uh, humanity is essentially hardwired to deal in some way with key contradictory issues like death and life, male, female, you know, and so forth. And, uh, and thus stories, especially of a kind of mythic kind, tend to deal with these issues. And I, I think I briefly mentioned this last time. Thus, in The Matrix, when I was watching that with Dave Lewis, my feeling was that the male-female thing is actually handled in there and is, is a factor with the ending of it. He never saw it. And he said nobody's ever sort of reviewed it like that. But see, I would say maybe the filmmaker is under influences as a human being apart from what he might be conscious of. That's the idea of structuralism. So given these two, uh, this would be right. How, however, I will say this. I don't think that the notion that a text kind of has a life apart from the author is all that is all that um, realistic on level one all right so if you're dealing about the meaning on level one what did Veltz mean when he put the little chart out in 11 of the implied reader and so on well I'm gonna be able to tell you that and that's what I meant it's not gonna be something other than I meant if you're actually discussing what was his argument. Okay, good. Uh, yeah? Does an author have the right, if he's still living, to change his intention on a work as he progresses? Say society changes, can he, does he have the right to say, well, now that this has happened, I would have still produced the same work, but I would have interpreted it differently? See, I think you're on level two. I think that might work on level two. If I had done a novel to illustrate how people are, let's say, I might say, well, look at that novel. Now it also makes this point that I wasn't conscious of or something. See, I think that kind of only works in a genre that's a narrative genre. Because I was thinking of books of a political nature like 1984. Oh, right. Well, see, but again, you're talking about a narrative. I, this, to me, this is one of the great lacking features in all this discussion about um, um, uh, 
intentionality and, you know, what is the author thinking and all that kind of stuff is genre and which level are you interpreting on. And, and everybody who wants to see the work apart from the author will go to narrative and interpret on level two. And the ones who don't like that will go to something like uh, uh, a set of instructions and something that's focused on level one. Okay. All right, next paper. Joe. This is interesting. This is probably a question of a theologian of glory. Yeah, you're right. But I can't help wonder why God has allowed something so important as the interpretation of his holy word to be so obscure and difficult. I would say, now I doodled around on this a little bit. I would say the answer is because God has chosen to be incarnational. So essentially, why didn't he just kind of, wham, come down and solve this whole problem just like that? And it is, you're right, you mentioned it is sort of a theodicy issue. Uh, but he's chosen to be engaged in the processes of this world. And as a result, it's kind of dirty and sloppy. And this would explain also, for example, why is it that you have variant readings of the text? You know, how come... You don't have one perfect text which clearly is never miscopied and so on like that because he's working incarnationally. All right, now we transition to chapter 11 through J.B.'s paper. Pay attention now, J.B., I'm praising you. All right. Now, you're talking about here the second text in the matrix and so on. You say this matrix might be even more valuable because understanding the author's perception of the reader might provide a more accurate understanding of the author's aim. Let me read that again. Understanding the author's perception of the reader might provide a more accurate understanding of the author's aim. See, you got the exact transition between chapters 10 and 11. So you're trying to get the author's aim. Well, one of the ways in which we're sort of connected with that is the whole idea of the implied author and the implied reader. So I just wanted to use that in your, your sort of summary here as a transition to chapter 11. It's very well done. Um, now, Mark, um, uh, this is another transition to 11. How do we know that our own experiences don't change our understanding of the text to something that we should not understand the text to mean. And, you know, that, that's the validity thing. So look at it like this. I'm going to put this up on the board. So 10 talks about how meaning, and I like this next verb for this, how meaning arises, all right? I, I like this better than how meaning is made or manufactured. How meaning arises. You interact with the signifiers and meaning emerges. You could kind of almost use that word, but arises works too. So how meaning arises and then the intention of the author. That's what we had in chapter 10. Now, in chapter 11, holy smoke, is there any control on this process? If we're all involved in a transaction between ourselves as second text and the signifiers of the text as first text, is there any control on any of that stuff? That is the um, well, Oz, I can only say, quoting the people in the Bronx, you know, that is the bait noir stalking through all interpretive deliberations. So let's move then in chapter 11 to the first half. Remember, the first, first part of 11 deals with implied author, implied reader, and all that kind of stuff. And then the second half on the role of the Holy Spirit. Now, what I would like to 
focus on here for the rest of the period is the issue of becoming the implied reader. So, you know, I should actually say one thing about that chart. Let me get the book here and put that up on the screen. Uh, in Chapter 11, that, uh, that box diagram, okay, page 218, that, that box diagram. Now, this is, as I say in the footnote, my own variation of a standard diagram, normally attributed to Seymour Chapman. But the other people who do this do something different with number three, that cloud in the center. Most of the time, when you see this done in other books, it's done like this. You know, they'll have this part and this part, and then they'll put another solid rectangle in there. I think that's a problem because three is the story that arises from the signifiers. And that story is going to look different every time you look at it. So, for example, you read the Gospel of Mark first. Then you get to the end of the Gospel of Mark with that kind of odd ending. Then you go back and look at it again. You start seeing some stuff. So that's why I put that as kind of an amorphous cloud. Because, I mean, it's only semi-amorphous. But I think you're better off making it something like this that doesn't have these harsh boundaries to it. And we can dispute things like, why did Jesus go into Galilee? I mean, you know, maybe it's not all that clear. Yeah. So let's say uh, as a pastor, you're reading it, uh, you look at it, you do a sermon on the, the first interpretation, then you go back and you interpret it a different way. Would you say uh, that if you gave a sermon on the way you interpreted it the first time, would it be considered heresy? No. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. As long as you have, what I, what I guess I'd put it this way, as long as you have evidence for that. In other words, that you have uh, dimensions in the text that give rise to that interpretation. See, now you could say later on, if you look at it from a different point of view, ah, now I'm going to relate Jesus going away into Galilee with saying, go tell Herod that fox. Okay? So, well, that's actually in Luke. I can't, can't use that point of view though? No, now you're matrixing a little bit different. See, you could draw the lines a little bit different. I, I think this is, uh, this is possible. Um, take something like our, we keep doing this one, the wedding at Cana and Jesus making the uh, water into wine. Well, see, you could have that one that the creator stands amidst his creation. Then you kind of do more work on John and you say, you know, the creation motif, it's there in one but I'm kind of thinking the messianic age might be a little bit more important, so I'm not going to go in that direction. See, but I don't know that that's really wrong. You're doing level two interpretation. You're trying to draw arrows. Well, that's what we're talking about here. See, how, how do you control this? Oz. Wouldn't it not be wrong, though, because you're applying both? Like, can't both be applied in those situations? Mm. Like, you can kind of say, well, I initially thought it was this, and that still kind of fits, but I think this is even more prevalent. Well, I mean, that might be a, a, better, way to, uh, uh, a better way to put it. Uh, let's come back to this after we, um, after we go through some of the major points that I want to make here. Uh, so the first, thing, uh, the first thing is that this is a, a sort of a, an amorphous cloud, and I think that's uh, that's important. Now, what the whole discussion of implied reader establishes is the fact not only can there be no objective interpretation of text. That was chapter 10 because interpretation involves a transaction. 
not only can there be no objective interpretation, there really shouldn't be. Because the author is aiming for a certain kind of reader, and the idea is to conform oneself to the implied reader to read. Now let me just say here, because you've all read this stuff, and I don't have to go over it. People, reader, this, this is part of what was popular in the 80s, started in the 70s, called reader response criticism, dealing with how readers respond to text. Then people started to get more radical in saying, well, you know what, the author may have an implied reader in mind, but maybe he's trying to manipulate the reader. So you might have to read what they call against the grain. Thus, he's trying to set up this and have this kind of implied reader, but I can kind of see what he's trying here, see what he's doing. Now you're reading on level three when you do that, and you're trying to figure what was the intentionality of this guy really, or you know something like that. But um, uh, what I'm talking about here is not very radical. A lot of people have moved away from this to say, well, you know, if you're trying to determine who's the implied reader and who's the implied author, just recognize this. It's you as a reader who's doing it. You know, you don't get the book along with a little slip that says these are the characteris these are the characteristics of the implied reader of this book. You don't get that. You're actually trying to figure it out from reading the book itself. So this is all a little more iffy than it looks, you know, at first blush. Now what I want to get on to, but so uh, just to summarize this point though, this approach, which I think is a completely valid and correct approach, does really problematize the idea of an objective interpretation. Because it says you're not supposed to be standing apart from the work and, uh, and coming with no presuppositions. Far from it. You're supposed to have the right presuppositions. Now, let me just say here, as before I pick up your question, this really is sort of the approach that the early church always took. You're not supposed to be apart from the faith, but you're supposed to interpret it from within the faith. You might say that early church viewpoint is really a kind of a precursor of this postmodern viewpoint that we're talking about here. So, um, the notion of objective interpretation as such takes two shots that are fatal. One, the way interpretation works, the interpreter can never totally stand apart from the data. Two, it's not the way interpretation actually is conceived of as proceeding. In other words, an author writes, like, like for, for example, for this book, I write this book thinking you will have some acquaintance with Greek and Hebrew. I also write the book thinking that your acquaintance with Greek and Hebrew might not be absolutely top drawer, so I translate all the passages. See? So you can tell, just by looking at that, kind of reading on level three, you can see what my expectations were for the implied reader. Okay, Oz, you had a question. Okay, good. Now, let's spend our time talking about this conundrum that a lot of you wondered about, namely the business of the creeds and the... Um, and the interpretation of the scriptures. Now, the first thing that I would like to do here, and let me ask Josh if you would help me, would you pass out here uh, to the group this particular um, update? This is an essay 
that presents the material of this chapter um, just slightly differently, but it's basically the same, but it's updated, and it's entitled The Holy Spirit and Scriptural Interpretation. But that title is actually more to titillate people's interests as much as anything else. It really is the whole thing with chapter 11, uh, which has, if you take a look, it's got the diagram and so on like this. However, the reason that I, uh, I think that this is so important is it corrects, it corrects the, um, a couple of errors in the chapter. Now, I would like you to go to page four of the essay. And you will notice on page four, at the first complete paragraph, starting much more traditionally expressed. What I've done here compared to the book, and by this I mean compared to the book, um, we're talking about pages 221 and following. Let me just put the book out here on page 221. I've got, much more traditionally expressed, bottom of the page, to be in that Christian community is to adhere to and confess its creeds. All right? Now, I would like you to see the expansion that I've done in the paper. Look at page 5. Page 5. Much more traditionally expressed, to be in that Christian community is to adhere to, to confess, and to interpret within the context of the creeds and the regula fidei. Now, that is a concept that occurs in the footnotes a little bit, but is not in the basic text of chapter 11. And the regula fidei translates as rule of faith, rule or principle of faith. The regula fidei is explained... Um, in footnote 13, so just go down the page there. The regula fidei, or rule of faith, also called the rule of truth, did have a general content, though it appeared in different localities, expressed slightly differently, addressing slightly different concerns. Hence, one can speak of the plural regulae fidei. So, let me just go on and say, the regula fidei, or in plural, regulae fidei, could be conceived of as kind of proto-creeds. Okay? They're kind of proto-creeds in localities. And they all have basically the same content, but it's tweaked a little bit depending on what they're, um, what they're addressing. Now, I give you an example, and this is not in the book. I give you an example um, in footnote 13, and let me just put this up on the screen. It's a little small, but let me put this up. And this is from um, uh, the example here from uh, Irenaeus against heresies. Right here, Irenaeus against heresies. And here's his regula. The church, though dispersed throughout the world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith. She believes in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and the sea and all the things that are in them. See how similar that is to the Apostles' Creed? And in one, Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who proclaimed through the prophets the dispensations of God and the advents and the birth from a virgin and the passion, and the resurrection from the dead, and the ascension into heaven in the flesh of the beloved Christ Jesus our Lord, and his future manifestation from heaven in the glory of the Father, to gather all things in one, and to raise up anew all flesh of the whole human race, in order that to Christ Jesus our Lord and God and Savior and King, according to the will of the invisible Father, every knee should bow 
of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess to him and that he should execute just judgment towards all. Now, you'll notice it's the same as the Apostles' Creed with some sort of expansions like of the sea and all the things that are in, and a little bit expanded on the second coming, you'll judge everybody. So the reguli were these sort of proto-creeds that did the basics and were in the various communities around the Mediterranean and around the world, uh, around the um, ancient world. Now these are a little more ancient than the apostles and then what we would call the Nicene Creed. Hence I bring this into the discussion in the paper itself. And so, if you'll just stay with this, and now I'm up in the text again, such creeds and regula are not something foreign to the books of the New Testament. On the contrary, they are and from the first were seen as of a piece with these very books, namely, drawn from the same apostolic source. Therefore, to live within the creeds and regula gives one an orientation to the books of the New Testament, an orientation which is congenial to them and which enables one to interpret them in accordance with their intention. So in other words, this basically goes on uh, pretty much the same way. Uh, but I want you to have this for two reasons. One, it introduces the concept of the regula fide, and two, it actually gives you one. So you can see it. Now comes this important part of the discussion, and is the main thing I want to focus on for the balance of the period. The relationship between the regula fidei and creeds and the scriptures is exceedingly important and hermeneutically significant. The reguli were seen as apostolic, as I say, drawn from the same apostolic source. Now, I'm going to read to you a little bit from this important work from, from the history of the Lutheran Church, Chemnitz's Examination of the Council of Trent. And in his first volume here, part one rather, uh, by the way, this is Concordia Publishing House, 1971. Uh, in this examination of the Council of Trent, so he comments on Trent, the Roman Catholic response to the Reformation in the 1550s and 60s. And he says that there are essentially eight different kinds of tradition in the church, you know, such as what the words that Jesus actually said and things like this. But his Third tradition, he called, this is from page 231, he calls the tradition of the apostles. And he mentions here, we set down as the third kind of tradition, that concerning which Irenaeus and Tertullian speak, the tradition of the apostles. Now, look here uh, what is said uh, by Irenaeus. But what if the apostles had not left us the scriptures? Would it not then be necessary to follow the order of the tradition which they delivered to those to whom they entrusted the churches? Many barbarous tribes hold to this order, for they have salvation written in their hearts by the Spirit without letter and ink, and diligently observe the ancient tradition of the apostles. And now down here, Tertullian writes, we shall set up this rule. If Christ sent the apostles to preach, then no other preachers are to be received except those whom Christ appointed. But what they preach, that is, what Christ revealed to them, I prescribed here too cannot be proved in any other way than by those same churches which the apostles themselves founded by personally preaching to them both by word of mouth and by epistles. Now, on page 235, Chemnitz going further says, Even if no writing had been left by the apostles, nevertheless, 
from that tradition which the church had received from the apostles and which it had preserved until uh, uncorrupted until that time, it could be learned what the true apostolic doctrine was. And then, further, we get this statement from Chemnitz. He says, both of these authors enumerate the points which they proved from tradition. They are the very articles of faith which make up the Apostles' Creed, and that's just like these reguli. There is no doubt that these are taught in the Scripture in many clear passages. Therefore, they do not bring forward or prove any other dogma of faith from tradition beside those that are contained in the Scriptures, but they set forth and prove also from tradition those very same dogmas which are found in the Scriptures. The reason why they appeal to tradition, although they had many firm Scripture passages, we have set forth above, namely, that they might show the agreement between the true apostolic tradition and the Scriptures. Therefore, they prove from the traditions the truth, the authority, and the sufficiency of Scripture because these are altogether the same dogmas of faith that are contained in the Scripture and which the primitive church had received from the traditions of the apostles and had preserved pure until those times. Now, the idea then is something like this. Do you remember in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul says to the people of Thessalonica, Don't you remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? That was his oral teaching. Paul did not say, say, I taught you some stuff when I was there. Now that I've written the letter, that supersedes everything I told you. No, he actually refers to his oral preachment. Okay? He actually refers to his oral preachment. So, what Chemnitz is talking about and what I am arguing is that essentially this regula fidei or rule of faith is congruent with the Holy Scriptures because, listen, it is drawn from the same apostolic source. In other words, those churches, as, as Irenaeus and Tertullian say, preserve this oral and written stuff from the apostles. So if you had gone to Corinth or you had gone to Thessalonica, they could have told you what Paul said and they could have showed you the letters that he had written. And those two are treated as authoritative and apostolic. Now, I'm going to give you a, an analogy that I have developed to show this. And I think this is very important. Oh, before I do the analogy, I want to clarify one point. This is absolutely critical. This apostolic tradition, as enshrined in the Reguli, is not drawn from Scripture. It is apostolic preachment and or it represents, let me use that term, it represents the preaching of the apostles and the letters that they wrote. So it is an expression of apostolic teaching. Now, here is the analogy. Let us say, <clears throat> Joe, what's your wife's name? Nicole. Nicole. Let's, how long have you been married? Three years. You come to the fifth anniversary, you want to do something really nice, great evening, okay? So you go to Neiman Marcus, big-time department store in Frontenac Plaza, and you get her a wonderful Bill Blast designer gown, okay? This is going to be for the fifth anniversary. And you go out to Tony's 
biggest time restaurant in St. Louis, and you have a great meal. However, being a male, and therefore a klutz, when you're at dinner, you spill some red wine. I hope it was a burgundy, all right, on this dress. And now you're wondering, what should we do to clean that dress? Fortunately, when you bought the Bill Blast designer gown, they gave you some swatches of cloth that could be used to repair the gown in case there had been a rip or something like that. Just like, you know, in men's suits, they will give you some of the, uh, the cuttings, which can be used in exactly that same way. These swatches of cloth are cut from the same bolt of cloth that made the dress. But they are not the dress. Okay? So you go home, and you take one of these swatches of cloth, and you see, hey, can we wash the dress in the washing machine? But you don't know. Will it all pucker up or something like that? I know. We'll throw one of the swatches in to see what happens. Sure enough, the thing puckers up completely. Well, what happened? The swatch and its fibers reveal the content and characteristics of the dress, even though it wasn't the dress. So, so it has the, the, the swatch has a hermeneutic or interpretive function over against the dress because it has the same content and characteristics. You find out you can't put it in the washing machine. So you go to Colonial Cleaners over here. Colonial, I can testify, does a good job. You go over to Colonial Cleaners, put the dress in. Comes back one week later. Your wife tries it on. She says, wait a minute. This looks like the dress but it's not the same dress. They've substituted a knockoff. This is not actually the designer gown. How are you going to know whether it was the designer gown or not? Ah, you have the swatches. So you take a look and through the microscope, look at the fibers, compare the fibers, and canonically are able to determine whether or not that dress is genuine because you have a standard against which you can place it. So the swatches of cloth have a dual possible function, an interpretive function and a canonical function. Those are the same functions that the reguli perform. They help you. I'm going to take them in reverse order now. They help you, because they have apostolic content, to see what books are actually apostolic and authoritative. And once you have those books, they help you in the interpretation of those books because they have the same content. Now, let me illustrate this to you. Take a look at that regula fidei that from Irenaeus that's on your paper. Did you notice down about five lines in that indented paragraph there is the statement the birth from a virgin? Well how interesting is that? There are people who try to do exegesis on the Gospel of Matthew who will say well, you know, you could understand the level one signifiers in such a way that she maybe really wasn't a virgin and so on. And you know what? Regula Fide says, no. Because as a matter of fact, this is the apostolic confession. Now, notice if you read the Gospel of Matthew, you can easily get that off of a reasonable reading of the text, right? And that's what I mean. It's in this paper, and it's, uh, it's also in the book. Uh, that's what I mean by the fact, uh, go to page 6 of the paper, and this has changed a little bit as well. 
It must be noted, however, that the New Testament scriptures do retain their authority on their own and that interpretations dependent upon the creeds and reguli should always be able to appeal to matrices of signifiers and meanings which appear within these scriptures and which support assertions in the creeds and reguli. So in other words, it's not like the reguli go around saying stuff like, Jesus left Nazareth at 28 years of age, or something like that. This, this is basic doctrinal content that is congruent with the content in the scriptures, and it is easy to find level one readings that testify to that. I'll tell you another one that's really great by looking at, go back to that regular again. This is a really terrific one as well. I think that example of the virgin birth is very good. But here's another good one. Where it says, the resurrection from the dead and the ascension into heaven in the flesh. Okay? In the flesh. It wasn't a spiritual resurrection. Now, this is not stretching the Bible's interpretation, is it? But it sure is a great flywheel for that interpretation. This is what the apostles always and everywhere taught. So all the mumbo-jumbo you might want to do that he was raised, but maybe, you know, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that it was a different kind of body or something like that. And my own doctoral supervisor thought that Jesus' body was still rotting in Palestine. It was a spiritual resurrection. Well, if you're going to be an historical Christian, you can't believe that. Because this is apostolic teaching. It puts a flywheel on that kind of interpretation. Again, you're not stretching one darn thing in your interpretation of the Bible. It's not suggesting anything that's not written there. But it's helping you to keep your focus in your interpretation. Uh, now, something like the regula also uh, provides a canonical function because you can test with the regular whether or not, let's say, some Gnostic gospel or something like that has orthodox apostolic teaching. Compare what it says to what the regular say. They, they will be a testimony. I mean, it's, it's sort of like, I guess you might say, if you were Lutherans, this would be sort of a parallel. It's, it's like the small catechism for the church at large or something like that. It's the basic teaching. What is important here is that the reguli are not drawn from the Bible. They are equally apostolic, just like the swatches of cloth. Nicole, hopefully, will not wear the swatches to the restaurant. That would cause a scandal. She has to wear the dress. All right? So they're not the same thing, and they weren't cut off of the dress. See? They're not drawn from it. But they are from the same bolt of cloth. Now, in my view, this analogy helps to explain where the Roman Catholic Church has gone wrong. They're big on tradition. Okay? To extend the analogy, the Roman Catholic Church is like people who are running the woolen mill which made this nice wool dress. And it was handed down, handed down, handed down, more and more people in the family. Then, let's say 13 generations later, you go, you take a look, it's in the same family, the woolen mill. And it turns out that they're ma making wool rayon blends now. Still in the same family. Still something of the wool. I mean, they're not producing plastic or something like that. But there's been other stuff that's sort of put in now. So 
you still have some connection, still wool, you still have the same family, but it's not exactly the same thing as the swatches that were cut off of the same bolt of cloth that made that nice wool dress that you got for Nicole. So um, to summarize here, there is a flywheel on interpretation with what Chemnitz calls the third kind of tradition, this apostolic tradition. Not a lot of it in these reguli which are around. It, you know, for, for the ease of explaining this to lay people, you could kind of say the Apostles' Creed. They all sort of look like the Apostles' Creed. But they're expanded in some sections. And by the way, let me just say, uh, a couple of you have questions about this, and we'll get to those later, but I'm going to anticipate this a little bit. What I'm saying explains how it works, but it's not a solution to everything. It doesn't, it doesn't solve problems of, can women be in the pastoral office? What about dealing with the lodge? You know, stuff like that. It doesn't, it, it doesn't solve all of your issues. But I will tell you this, it helps to solve really big issues like, was Jesus bodily resurrected, you know? Um, is God really the creator of all things? Will there be a second coming at which he comes to judge the living and the dead? Okay. Some of the, the biggies for the faith are actually um, under discussion in the reguli. Now, um, I'm going to pick this up here next time, and um, um, I'm going to pick this up with a discussion of the relative merits of written and oral, and how this relates to scripture, interpret scripture, and so on, and then we'll go, we'll take your papers, and then we'll go on to the role of the Holy Spirit in interpretation. Thanks.